Today's scripture is from Acts 2, 40 through 47. Then Peter continued praying for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Amen. Today's uh, message is entitled, Is the Church a Social Club? It's good to be in God's house, isn't it? Good to be in God's house. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin. Father in heaven, we come before you, the infinite, all-knowing God of the universe. And Father, we come to this place because our desire, Lord, is to meet you. Our desire is to grow in our understanding of the plan of salvation. Our under, our, to, to grow, Lord, in our obedience to you. And I pray that as we study scripture, that you would speak to hearts in a way that human wisdom cannot accomplish. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Perhaps you've heard of the rather terrible experiment that was done in the 13th century. There was a German king, Frederick II, that conducted a rather diabolical experiment intending to discover what language children would naturally grow up speaking if no one ever spoke to them. Think about that. Children uh, are, are raised by their parents and they're spoken English or Spanish or whatever language that might be. And, and he had the idea, I want to see what language they would speak if they didn't have anyone to speak to them. And he thought it would be German. Of course, because he was a German king. So this is what King Frederick did, unfortunately. He took babies from their mothers at birth and placed them in the care of nurses who were forbidden to speak in their hearing. These nurses agreed to that, but unfortunately, a second rule was imposed. The nurses were also not allowed to touch those baby infants. And to his great dismay, Frederick's experiment was cut short. But the reason it was cut short was not because people were uninterested in the experiment. It's because all of those babies passed away. The babies who grew up with no one speaking to them and no one touching them died literally 
for want of a human touch. Modern medicine calls this phenomenon failure to thrive. And for some reason, human beings inf- or flourish under the influence of love and care and connection. In fact, humans gradually will die, as that experiment showed, without that connection. The implications of this fact are huge. Uh, for example, consider the, the research of Dr. Dean Ornish. In his national bestseller, Love and Survival, Ornish presents study after study showing that love is a chief influence for mental, emotional, and also physical health. In his book, Love and Survival, he writes, anything that promotes the feelings of love and intimacy is healing. Anything that promotes isolation, separation, loneliness, loss, hostility, anger, cynicism, uh, depression, alienation, and related feelings often leads to suffering, disease, and premature death from all causes. So modern science, non-spiritual, secular scientists are discovering through studies that human beings are engineered for love and connection. You must be loved in order to survive. Now, we know as Christians exactly where this comes from. We we, we can think, well, uh, uh, of course. But the way that our world explains it is this way. As I was just researching online this week, notice this explanation. Why are we social creatures? Why are we engineered for connection and love? Here's the world's answers. We're social creatures. We evolved this way out of necessity. Back when we roamed the plains, do you remember that? Back when we roamed the plains, we had a much better chance of survival if we had other animal friends that we could depend on. And while we don't have these same threats today, we've kept our social nature and continue to have a deep need to be with others. So back when we roamed on the plains, we needed our animal friends, and we've kept that social connection. I'm not quite sure, friends, if that's the best explanation of why we're engineered for love. Why are they finding out that we're built for connection? And I think all of us know the answer. The answer is because the infinite God of the universe, our creator and our maker, is a God of love. 1 John 4, 8 and several other places in scripture make it very clear that God is a God of love. God is a God of connection. In fact, God himself is a community of three persons in one. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They exist in perfect unity. And the doctrine of the Godhead, or the Trinity, that doctrine in and of itself urges that God be essentially social, communal, and interpersonal. And it's actually a very unique vision of God's character that is unique to Christianity. In contrast to deism, which teaches that God set up everything in our world, but then he stands back and lets everyone mill about and he is not involved at all. In contrast as well to polytheism, which teaches that there are many gods that need to be appeased. In contrast to pantheism, which teaches there's really not a God at all, but the universe or even reality itself is divine. In contrast to those religions, the Bible claims that there is a God and his character consists of interpersonal relationship and divine benevolence. 
uh, that, that there is a loving character to our gods. God is love. And that makes sense to us. Because when we love someone else, we want to share that experience with them. Just a few weeks back, I was uh, in Asheville for a lunch appointment at one of my new favorite restaurants. And that is an Indian restaurant called Andas or Andas. Anyone been there before in Asheville? This place, I, I'm just smiling thinking about this place. Uh, this had one of the best lunch buffets, uh, Indian buffets that, that I've ever had. And, and at this lunch appointment, enjoying uh, myself with, with uh, the person I was having the appointment with, and we spent some time talking about some things and, and praying together. Uh, but I will admit that as I was consuming this incredible Indian food, that I was thinking about my wife. Because my wife and I have enjoyed Indian food together. When we lived in Bering Springs, we used to travel down to South Bend, 30 minutes south of us, and there was an Indian restaurant that had an incredible buffet. When, when we were there in Loma Linda area, and some of my uh, uh, Loma Linda friends, uh, where are you, there you are. My Loma Linda friends uh, perhaps are acquainted with uh, several of the Indian restaurants there, but there's some wonderful Indian restaurants there that my wife and I uh, uh, enjoy together, and that's something that we enjoy. And as I was eating this food, I was thinking about her. I have to share this with my wife. I have to let her know about this incredible place because that's what love does. When you're experiencing something by yourself, you think, you know, I want to share this with someone else. And the God of the universe in the Godhead, in the Trinity, had such a beautiful circle of love, he thought to himself, I can't keep this to just us. These three of us, we have to share this. So we have the other worlds that God has created. We have the community of angels in heaven. And then we have our own world. God created man in his own image. That's why John 17, 23 says this, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one. Here's Jesus talking to the Father. He's praying in John 17, a prayer of unity for his disciples. He says that the world may know that you sent me and that the world may know this, this line struck me this week as I was reading in Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing and as, as, as the author drew attention to this passage, as I was thinking about this last line, that the Father, here's Jesus seeking, uh, talking to his Father, Lord, I want the world to know that you love them just like you love me. That's incredible. That the love that we know is there between the Godhead, the infinite, perfect love that exists between the Father and Son and the Spirit, that that same love that the Father has for the Son, he has for you. The exact same love. And that's why we're also told in John 14, 18, that this love that the Father has for us is so great that God actually wants to adopt us into his family. That heaven's family wants to be united with the family of earth. That we are not left to struggle on our own. Jesus says in John 14, 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I heard the story of a five-year-old girl with beautiful brown eyes and curly hair. No one knew her name when she came to the orphanage, and so they called her Celine. Both her parents had passed away in a tragic accident when she was two years old, and no relatives claimed her. And since she was two, she lived at this orphanage, and there she was given everything that she needed. 
She had food and clothing and shelter, but life was hard for Celine. And even there at her young age in the orphanage, she knew something was missing. She couldn't remember her parents' faces, but she missed the comforting embrace and love of a mom and a dad. Celine began to notice that people would visit this orphanage and, 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 and many of her friends that she would play with, she no longer got to play with them because they were adopted into various families. The orphanage had taught these young children to pray, and she prayed that God would bless her with a mom and a dad. One fine day when she was busy in her own world coloring books and playing with her toys, a couple noticed her. They noticed her cheerful disposition and her beautiful brown eyes and her curly hair. They decided to adopt her. And when she got the news that she was going to be adopted, Celine started dancing with joy. She was so excited at five years old to think that she could finally have her dream come true of being with a family that loved her. And when Celine first met her new parents, her eyes filled with tears of joy. As the couple embraced her and said, Celine, our daughter, welcome home. She packed her stuff and she started her new life with her mom and dad. Friends, you and I are spiritual orphans. Without Jesus, as we are left in our sin, if you read Ezekiel 16, it paints a tragic picture of a baby that's left there out to die, left in its own blood, left in the fluid, left by itself, but God comes along, and this is a reference to Israel. He comes along to this baby, and he clothes this baby. He raises this baby, his daughter, and the Bible says that Jesus is going to raise us, that we will not, we, he will not leave us orphans. Aren't you thankful for that, friends? But the God of the universe desires to bring us into his family. He desires to bring us into his family. But it even gets better. Yes, we can be adopted into his families as, as children and sons and daughters of God, but it gets better, friends. Hebrews 2.11 says this, that both he who sanctifies and those that are being sanctified are all, all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. The infinite God of the universe looks at you and says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother and my sister. That's an incredible thought, friends, that Jesus looks at ragged, sin-ridden human beings and says, I'm not ashamed of them. I want to call them my brethren. We read this in Desire of Ages. In Christ, the family of earth and the family of heaven are bound together. Can someone say amen? Isn't that a beautiful thought? Christ glorified is our brother. Heaven is enshrined in humanity, and humanity is enfolded in the bosom of infinite love. And here in this same chapter, we read that Christ was able to recover more than if we had never sinned. We are going to be closer to the God of the universe by be in this sinful world than angels. In fact, angels, uh, angels were told, they are serving humans to give them ex an experience they can't have. Human beings can have a closer walk with Jesus than the angels. What a beautiful thought. And I think, friends, that it's all because of Jesus. 
We also read that in Christ we become more closely united to God. Here's what I was talking about. Than if we had never fallen. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. All throughout the ages of eternity, the ceaseless ages of eternity, as we continue on year after year, there will not be any time. Time will be no more. But as we continue on in eternity, Jesus will always retain his human nature. Last quote here. By love self-sacrifice, the inhabitants of earth and heaven are bound to their creator in bonds of an indissolvable union. What an incredible thought. That word I was thinking about this week, indissoluble incapable of being annulled, undone, or broken, and it comes from the word dissolve. There's lots of things that I can think of that can be dissolved, uh, but as I was looking uh, this week, what are examples of, of something being dissolved? Uh, one made me laugh, and that was uh, a, a brownie in a cup of water. Well, that probably would be dissolved. That probably would be dissolved in my own mouth, too, very, uh, very quickly, right? That, that would be dissolved, but there is something that cannot be dissolved, it is indissoluble. It, it is incapable of being broken, and that is our union with Christ. Through the ceaseless ages of eternity, Christ is bound to us by a link that can't be dissolved. It cannot. You cannot dissolve that link, friends. What a precious, precious, beautiful thought that Jesus desires to not just welcome us into his family, but also to become brethren with us. We have an elder brother in heaven. And because of that, friends, because of that, I invite you to turn with me to Philippians. Scripture gives us an opportunity to do the same thing that Jesus has done. Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two, verses one through four. Notice verse one, Paul's argument. He says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and, and notice the emotional, relational words that Paul uses. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Now before we go on to, to listen to what Paul is saying here, he's essentially saying what we've been talking about. That there is in Christ and in the Father and in the Spirit, there's a relationship there that we can enjoy. We can enjoy comfort of love from God. We can en enjoy comfort from the Spirit. We can enjoy consolation in Christ. And, and if we understand that character of God, then we have a responsibility. What Paul is saying here is saying, listen, if this is the case, if you recognize that God's character is like this, then this is what you need to do, and he's about to tell us. So if we recognize that God's character is relational, that God is a social being, then notice verse two. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Be like Jesus. This my song. Be like Jesus all day long, right? Fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Be like God. Have the same character, the same love that he does. Being of one accord, of one mind. Verse three, well, what, what, what's God's character like? We're just told that we need to be like God's character. If we have any comfort from his relational side, and, and, and then we need to 
have the same. But what does that mean? Well, verse 3 and 4 tells us, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. How many of you appreciate God's character of love? Beautiful. I think we all do. Because Paul is saying, because I appreciate his character of love, I need to strive to have that character. And what that looks like is putting other people's needs above my own by being unselfish, by serving others and being with others. Notice how Thoughts and Not a Blessing puts it, it, summarizes it well, the perception of God's love. That's what we've been doing today. We've been perceiving and thinking about God's love. Works the renunciation of selfishness. As we perceive God's love, it renounces selfishness. It gets away, it throws it away in the trash. In calling God our Father, do you call God your Father? Amen. In calling God our Father, we recognize that all of his children are his brethren. We are all part of the great web of humanity, all members of one family. That's an incredible thought. That my three children and my wife and my dad and my mom and my younger brother Jonathan and my sister Melissa and their families, that's not my only family. That there are others that I consider as brethren, and that is you, people, not just in the church, but outside of the church, that all people, his children, are brethren. We are part of the great web of humanity, all members of one family, and if that's the case, in our petitions, in our prayers, we are to include our neighbors as well as ourselves. No one prays a right who seeks a blessing for himself alone. And then, Someone that I was praying with this week shared something with me that, that, that made me think. And this person said that when they pray, they always pray for themselves last. They pray for other people first, their family first, then their selves last. And that hit me. And I realized, God, sometimes I always don't do that. I pray for my needs first. God, help me with this. Help me to be less selfish. Help me to be kind. But I believe God is wanting us to pray for other people first, to recognize that we're part of that great web of humanity. I read the story this week of a family who had been waiting five years to adopt. Maybe some of you understand those challenges. With many heartaches and challenges along the way, and one day I saw a photo on a special needs adoption photo listing from South Korea and knew this was the match for our family. We petitioned to adopt the child and a few days later received a call from the agency saying we had been chosen for him and that he would be brought to the O'Hare Airport in Chicago. We rushed to furnish his room, bought clothes and supplies, all the while fearing that it would all fall through yet again. Finally, it was time to go to Chicago. We had brought an escort gift on the advice of the other adoptive parents, but when I tried to hand it to the young man carrying his baby, imagine, that young man is carrying his baby, he smiled and shook his head and said, just take care of the baby, just take care of the baby. My heart seemed to skip a beat and all the craziness around us seemed to pause. It was like being caught out of time and then I said, yes, I will. Yes, I will take care of your baby. It felt like a marriage vow. 
This tremendous yet small and solemn little moment, yes, I will. I turned my husband and daughter so they could hug us, and we became a family. As I read that story, I I, I thought to myself that every time I interact with anybody, that is not Jeff Harper. It could be one of my own children. It could be one of you. It could be someone from the community. But every single time that I interact with them, God is handing me a baby and saying, take care of my baby. Take care of my baby. And there's this solemn moment of our interaction where I realize that we are bound by ties because we are part of the great family in this world, that we are all children of God. And that changed how I begin to think of how I interact socially with people, that I'm interacting with another child of God. I was thinking this week about family and how wonderful family is. This is a a picture of our ragtag family. My parents, my dad there, kneeling down in that black jacket. Greg Harper shared some of his stories before, some of his story. He didn't grow up a a Christian or Seventh-day Adventist, but long story short, started reading his Bible and some people gave him some uh, literature and and praise God that he eventually became an Adventist and went to Weimar College and and met my mom there in the the green shirt. And there's my my sister, Melissa, uh, there with the blonde hair. She has two boys, uh, uh, Hendrix, uh, standing right in front of her, and then the boy in the wheelchair is their other son, uh, and and, uh, his name is Rowan. And Rowan has a disease called Frederick's ataxia. He's uh, 10 years old in a wheelchair. At five, uh, they started noticing that there were differences and he's gonna have to have a heart transplant and pray for Rowan. He's gonna have a a difficult life. But praise God that uh, his family is loving him. Uh, And there's my younger brother, Jonathan, uh, and his wife, Lauren. They both work up in Ohio. And uh, they'll be uh, uh, moving back to uh, California soon. Uh, but they just had a little baby named Theodore. It's that little bundle on my brother's chest is their new, little new baby. And, and it was my dad's 70th birthday this past summer. And so we had an opportunity, finally, we couldn't get together during the summer because uh, Jonathan and Lauren were having their baby. And so we worked out a time the weekend before Thanksgiving uh, to get together in Southern California and uh, spend some time in the sunshine and, and, and spend some time together. And as I was reflecting on, on, on my family, there's something special about family, isn't there? Uh, you know, family made my wife and I spend more money than we wanted to that was subtracted from our bank accounts to go out to California and use more miles on our southwest uh, 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 points uh, than, we, than we wanted to. But, but we love family. Of course we'll be there. Of course we'll be there. Family is why we went down and, and visited my grandmother, my kid's great-grandmother. They call her Gigi, Grandma Carol. This is my mom's mom. And her husband, my grandpa Don, passed away. I, I lived with them uh, for three years, right out of college. I, I came from Southern Adventist University, and for three years, got to live in a little side room that they had on their house and, and grew close to my grandparents during that time. And family is what caused us to to travel down, and and we went out of our way. We wanted to see Grandma Gigi. And uh, even though for Christmas we were here, my brother, his his wife's family live in in Collegedale, so they were down in Collegedale, and on their way out back up to to work, we all stopped in in Knoxville and got some some Thai food together, and and, uh, our kids enjoyed playing with with, with Theodore. Uh, There's something special about family, and you could share with me your stories of, of, of family. Of, of how uh, you experience joy, uh, perhaps uh, over the holidays, uh, spending time with them. 
But, but family, and, and one last picture right here, realizing uh, family is, is uh, why, you know, my wife and I, uh, we, we would, and I'm sure you would do the same, we would die for these children. children. Would you die for your children? We love our kids so much. And, and, and what a blessing to have these three precious young people in our life. And, and the reason I share those pictures and bring that up is, is, is to think back on that quote that we read at the beginning and to think of how special our family is and the fact that every person we come in contact with is part of the family of God, that they're our brethren, that the same treatment I give my family, I spend time with them. I go out of my way to do things for them. I lift them up. I encourage them because they're family, that we should do that not just with church members but with people in our community as well because we're part of the family of God. In Philippians chapter 2, if you're still there, uh, maybe your Bible is still uh, turned uh, there, but perhaps uh, you notice in verse 3 and 4, that Paul uses a, a word twice in verse three and four, and that is the word others. Esteem others better than yourself, and also look out for the interests of others. And that word is the Greek word one another, um, and that, that, that theme or that word is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. And I want to just show us a few times, because as I was studying this week, I was amazed at how often the Bible counsels us to do things for one another. Love one another is a command that's used 16 times. Love one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. We've, already, we've, we've always read these phrases in Paul's writings, but it's interesting to see them in one place, isn't it? So much admonition from Scripture to, to build up each other. Accept one another, admonish one another, uh, uh, greet one another, care for one another, serve, bear one another's burdens, forgive, be patient with one another, speak the truth in love, be kind and compassionate, speak in, in songs to one another, sing with one another, submit to one another, consider others better than yourselves. We looked at that and looked at the interests of others. We looked at that one too. Bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one one another to love and good works. Show hospitality to one another. And then finally, employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourselves with humility and pray for one another. That's just 30 out of the 100 times this word is used. I think we're hopefully seeing the, the picture here of the fact that God gives us a social responsibility to other people. That because Jesus died for them and he died for me, we need to look at them through the eyes of Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And notice here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Verse 24, and here's one of those words. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the question is, is the church a social club? That's the title of our sermon. And often I've heard that question being used to say, no, it's not. It's not a social club. It, 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 we come here to meet God. And I understand. The church inherently is not just a place solely just to come and be friends. We could do that anywhere else. 
But hopefully we're seeing, friends, that there is a deeper social aspect of the church than perhaps we've realized before. That the point of church, look at this, is to stir up one another to good works, to edify each other, to build up the body as Jesus is coming. So is the church a social club? Well, no, but kind of yes. It's a place where we need to look out for one another. Turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter two. And notice verse 42, it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now some uh, read different commentaries on that breaking of bread, and maybe a translation might say that's the Lord's Supper in particular, but, but there's debate on whether breaking bread is specifically uh, in the New Testament early church just having communion with each other or if it's also just sharing food house to house. And, 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 and I think that is a, a great possibility. This is not just they're having the Lord's Supper every time, but especially when you look at verse 46. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food. Right, this is not just them eating communion wafers and drinking grape juice. They're eating their food with gladness and joy. And we get this picture here in this passage of these people. Verse 44, now all who were believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. We've read this passage before. But the early church thrived on connection and social relationships. They thrived because as they sought God, as they sought the Holy Spirit, they recognized, you know, we're accountable and responsible for each other. We need to take care of each other. And as they took care of each other and as they sought God on their knees, the Holy Spirit worked in their lives. There was unity. And that is God's desire for his church. It is his desire for his church to bring together the body of Christ in a social way, to have connections. You could say here in Acts 2 that the early church thrived because of small groups. How could it be that the group grew from a small number to over 10,000 in such a small amount of time? It was because as they got bigger, they realized their need to get smaller. And that's why we're told these words in Testimonies to the Church, and this was written after a Christian revival took place in Melbourne, Australia. Ellen White was visiting there uh, in Australia, and at the height of this revival that took place in, in Melbourne, 2,000 groups were meeting in homes all over the city. Can you imagine that? There was a great revival that broke out, and here is when she said this, the formation of small companies as a basis of Christian effort has been presented to me by one who cannot err. Does God make mistakes? No. If there's a large number in the church, Hendersonville has a large number. It, it, it's growing. Let the members be formed into small companies to work not only for the church members, but also for unbelievers. These small groups are not just for ourselves, are they? They're also to invite people. And I want to challenge you as you're thinking about these small groups. Baptism and nurture, evangelism and nurture go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other. I believe that I need to do a better job of connecting with other people, not just in the church, but out of the church. And I think that if we were all honest, we could probably say I could do a better job, each of us raising our hands, at connecting with other people. 
thinking to ourselves, God, how can I nurture both in and out of the church someone to Jesus? And one way, there's a lot of ways, there's a lot of ways that you could do that. You could give someone a loaf of bread. You could give someone a card. You could give someone a smile. You could call someone. You could text them. There's a lot of ways. One of the ways that perhaps God is calling you, maybe he's not, but maybe one of the ways he's calling you to help nurture other people is through these small groups. But I want to encourage you to say, God, how can I, not just for myself, not just, hey, no one's reached out to me. Hey, the pastor hasn't called me. That's not what this is about. This is about what can I do to reach out to someone else? What can I do to share the love of Jesus? And I believe that as we do that, friends, and my challenge for us as a church in 2024, past these small groups, is that we will just think seriously about people around us and say, God, how do you want to lead the Harper family? That's what we've been praying. God, how can you lead us? Mikkel and Judah and Levi and Eden, how can you lead us to reach out to our neighbors more and to reach out to people in town more? What can we do? And I believe that as we all do that, as we reach out to each other, maybe we see someone's missing this Sabbath and we call them up and say, hey, I missed you. Or, or, or we see someone that hasn't been here for a while and we send them a card. But as we continue to reach out, I believe that God will do a great thing. Do you, do you believe that, friends? Amen. Ultimately, friends, as, as we become friends with each other, we can know that we have a friend with Jesus. I pray, Father, that the thought that you were willing to leave all heaven behind and Jesus was willing to come and become one of us, that we have an elder brother in heaven, that that, Lord, would encourage us. And I pray, Father, that as we think and contemplate on your love, that you would give us a burning love for people around us to reach out to them with the good news of Jesus. We love you. Thank you for this Sabbath day. And please keep us safe, Lord, as we drive home. We commit ourselves to you and we pray all these things in the precious name and blood of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen. amen.